Shalom, everyone. Shalom. Today we continue our study of the First Corinthians. And I've titled the message for today, Marriage and Divorce. Last week we studied the topic of marriage and celibacy. We'll continue on with that theme of marriage. But today I want to talk about this very serious issue that has with the matter of divorce. As many of you have heard the saying, it's become a relatively a common saying that half of all marriages end up in divorce. And Christians are no different from the people of the world. Our statistics remains pretty much the same. That was based upon 2008 research by Barna Research Group. But since then, they had to make some changes to that statement. They discovered that this was not complete and holistic. And I just recently, I just looked at all kinds of statistics related to divorce. And it's very difficult to really come up with a number. So today, the realistic percentage of divorce among Christians, they say, is about 30%. While the world is 50% and rising, even maybe even to 70% or so. Having said that, it is also said that those who are really committed to Christianity, those who are really devout, percentage is much smaller than that. That gives us a sense of hope. When I first heard that um, the report in the year 2008 or so, I was very disillusioned. I mean, if Christians are no different from the people of the world in terms of their understanding of the sanctity of marriage, then what kind of hope do we have in this world? But the recent statistics gives me a little bit of hope. And that is, if we really disciple our people well, then I think we can really help them to appreciate what marriage is more, value that more, and take that matter more seriously. And as a result, we will help to lower the divorce rate. So today I want to talk about the whole topic of divorce in the context of marriage. Let us look at the scripture for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 16. And let's read this out loud together. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she, she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Amen. This is the word of the Lord through 
Apostle Paul. So here in this text, we see the marriage context in two ways. First of all, marriage between Christians, that is found in verses 10 to 11, and the marriage between a Christian and non-Christian, verses 12 to 16. So we're going to examine this text today and also bring in the sayings of Jesus because Paul is really basing his statement on what the Lord had to say, at least in the context of Christian marriage. Verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. It is very clear, according to Paul, how it is to be to be married. And he bases that on the command of the Lord. Somehow, Paul was in touch with the sayings of Jesus. In those days, they didn't have the four Gospels finalized as we have today. That was in the process. So, the words of the Lord was being shared everywhere, and he clearly understood what Jesus had to say about the matter of divorce or separation. And we'll look at that in a little while. But for now, just clearly note that Paul is not just making his own statement here, at least not in verses 10 and 11. He's saying based upon what the Lord has prescribed and what the Lord has commanded, a wife must not separate from her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. You see how the translators basically use two different words to describe wife separating from her husband and the husband divorcing his wife. They did that purposefully because there's really no particular word for divorce here. Actually, the word has to do with leaving. So in the wife's case, she should not leave her husband voluntarily. And in the husband's case, he should not cause his wife to leave. Because in this patriarchal society, the man usually owned the home, and he'll stay home, and he'll kick the wife out. And that meant divorce. And they can do that in a formal way by giving some kind of certificate. They didn't even have to do that at all. They can just boot them out, and that's it. That's the end of that. That's the way it was in the Roman Empire. And Paul says very clearly, very strictly, you must not divorce. But this statement is based upon the premise of Jesus' statement. Paul is not only strict about not divorcing, but if divorce happens, let's say, and he's assuming that you will not initiate the divorce and maybe your partner has imposed that upon you and divorce happens. Then he's very strict about what you should do next. You should not remarry. You should do everything possible to get reconciled. This is the notion that Paul has about Christian marriage. It's a very, very high view. 
I don't know whether we in this modern day could possibly abide by this prescription. But I want to talk about that today. But before I do, let's turn to Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 10. Let's see what Jesus had to say about the matter of divorce. Where he spoke about marriage and divorce on a number of occasions. We find it in chapter 5. We find it here in chapter 19 of Matthew. We see it in Mark chapter 10. We also see it in Luke chapter 16. So he's been talking about it all along. But here he gives a sort of a lengthy statement in response to the questions that the Pharisees had for him. Chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see how Jesus responds to the Pharisees who came to him with a practical question. And this is what Jesus does. Oftentimes, in response to the practical questions and issues, he goes right to the essence of things. The original purpose of God regarding marriage. If you understood what marriage was, then you can kind of figure out what the implications would be. He could have given a yes or no answer to the question that the Pharisees were asking, but he didn't. He said, let's go back to the very, very beginning when God created human beings as male and female. And he meant male and female to be wedded together and become one flesh. That's a very intimate statement right there. So that if you become a flesh, of course, this, you can take this as a metaphor. Or you can take it as an analogy. But I think there's something mystical about this, as I mentioned the last week. So if you were to divorce from that state of union, then you're basically tearing the fabric of your soul, fabric of your life, fabric of even the structure of the society, and certainly the fabric of your family. And so Jesus emphasizes that unity, that union, that oneness. And here's that famous statement. I, I love stating this when I preside in a wedding. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So marriage was the intentional will of God. This is what God's intention is. This is His heart. And then in verses 7 to 9, the Pharisees ask, Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Why did Moses allow for divorce because of the hardness of people's heart. They're going to do it anyway. 
And so Moses had to give them a guideline as to if you're going to do it, you have to do it in a certain way. So if we're talking about divorce, divorce is never the intentional will of God. You cannot say God ordained divorce. He ordains marriage. But divorce falls under the category of permissive will of God. He permits it. He allows it. He does tolerate that at times. And Jesus places a condition here. Only ground for divorce, according to Jesus here, from the New Testament, is sexual immorality. Porneia. Porneia. Sexual immorality. And many translators would um, translate that as adultery. Because this is in the context of marriage. Wow, today, if adultery is the only ground, as Jesus states it, then we're going to have a lot of problems. That's not the only ground for divorce today. There are many, many grounds. We'll talk about those specifics later. And therefore, in verse 10, the disciples hearing this, they're shocked. And they said, if this is the situation between a man and a wife, it is better not to marry. And then Jesus goes on talking about celibacy. But not everyone's gifted for celibacy either. So, If you can really operate that way, that's fine. That's the way I'm operating. And Apostle Paul would say, amen to that. That's the way I'm operating. But the original purpose of God for male and female, the normal mode of operation, is marriage, not celibacy. Can I hear amen to that? Okay. So what we see here now is that for Jesus, there's no ground for divorce except the case of sexual immorality or adultery in the context of marriage. For Paul, since he mentions the command of the Lord, he's not obviously negating this. He says, okay, adultery may be tolerated. So you divorce your spouse. But he provides no ground for remarriage. If separated or divorced, then the only option is that you wait for the death of your spouse or get reconciled. Either way, this is such a, a strict command, both from Jesus and Paul. Why? Why did Jesus and why is Paul emphasizing that marriage has to be such a strict premise? And why did they don't want to make room for divorce? Because of the value of marriage, what marriage is about. And I tried to define that in the last moment of this message. But let's move on. Now let's look at marriage in the context of between Christian and a non-Christian in verses 12 and 13. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. 
Now he's talking about the context of marrying an unbeliever. But he says, I, not the Lord. Okay? He's differentiating between the command of the Lord that we can find today in the Gospels and his own statement based upon his apostolic authority. Are they contrary in nature? Not so. It's just that Jesus didn't state it. He didn't state a lot of things about a lot of things. But Paul, being led by the Spirit of God, he wants to say that this is what I think is in the mind and the heart of the will of the Lord. Maybe he didn't state it that way. But this is what I believe. So we have to respect his apostolic authority in this. And what is he saying about the marriage to unbelievers? He says the same thing. He says, if possible, and if they are willing, they mean the unbelieving spouses, they are willing to stay with you, even though you have converted to Christianity, then, then honor that, respect that. That marriage, the sanctity of that marriage still stands. Because God ordained that even before Jesus came to earth, even before he went to the cross, even before redemption was made and available to everyone. That was something mandated in the very act of creation. The temptation for the Corinthians, as we have studied in the previous text, is that um, once they became Christians, they thought maybe they could divorce their unbelieving wives. Because now they have entered into holiness, and these unbelieving spouses of ours, they belong to the unholy order of things. And so we should divorce them and remain celibate. But Paul's response is that we still need to acknowledge marriage as ordained by God whether within the church or outside the church. Because this was something that was ordained at the time of creation. And then he gives his reason why they should not divorce. In verse 14, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now here, we need to differentiate between the Old Testament concept of holiness and the New Testament concept of holiness. There is a clear differentiation here. If you have studied the Old Testament, you know that holiness is very fragile. That holiness can be influenced by defiled things. We see it in, in Leviticus and especially in Ezra's situation. God questions Ezra. You have this holy thing, but if unholy things comes into contact with the holy thing, what happens to the holy thing? It becomes unholy. That's why they had all these restrictions from holy things touching unholy things. In Ezra 9 and 10, we see something amazing happening. The people came back from exile and Ezra is teaching them. 
And then he realized that so many of the people who have populated in Jerusalem area were married with the pagan spouses. So he says, you need to repent about this. This is going against the covenant law. And these women or these men are influencing you to go after foreign gods. And therefore, he demanded that they repent and they send off their pagan spouses and basically declare divorce on a whole scale basis. It's an amazing thing that's happening there as the exiles return back to Jerusalem. So we see clearly in the Old Testament that the whole idea is you want to completely separate what is holy and unholy. What is of God and what is of the world. And have nothing to do with in terms of point of contact between these two. But in the New Testament, we see that the holiness that Jesus demonstrated was so powerful it wasn't one of those fragile things that can be shattered or that can be tainted. That the holiness has such power to influence and transform the sinful and the worldly things. That's why Jesus reached out to the lepers, the demon possessed, the dead bodies even, the prostitutes, the tax collectors who were considered the betrayers of their people, and the Samaritans. Jesus reached out and touched them. He made contact with them. And based upon that premise, I believe that Paul is saying that even the unbelieving spouse living with you because of your holiness, because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within you, because of the power of God that is upon you, they come under the jurisdiction of sanctification. Now, this does not mean that they are all saved or they are all regenerated. That's not what he's saying here. That can only happen by each one accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But even if they are not converted, they're under that jurisdiction. They're under the influence of holiness. That's how powerful holiness is. To a point that John Calvin in his commentary on this particular verse in 14, he says, For the piety of the one has more effect in sanctifying marriage than the impiety of other in polluting it. You have more confidence that sin will affect you in the negative or the power of God will use you to transform that which is sinful. And so Paul says that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified, that is under God's holy jurisdiction through his believing wife. And moreover, the children are considered holy. And same thing here. We're not saying that all the children are saved and regenerated. But while they're under the parental authority, they are within the will of God, within the influence of God, they are considered holy. So don't make issue of that. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he stood up to preach the message, and he presented 
the message to them. He challenged them. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. In those days when the father decided and the parents decided, we're going to worship the Lord, the whole family came to an agreement. It was not an individualistic society. It was a communal society. And the community can decide on this. So there's room for sort of a mass conversion that can happen. Today, of course, we question everything in terms of individualistic frame. That is, has each of those persons actually accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? But Peter had no problem with this. Paul has no problem with this issue. That as long as somebody is in authority, if somebody is a delegate of Jesus Christ, somebody represents the Holy Spirit, somebody represents the holiness of God, that whole place becomes, whole family becomes sort of like a temple of God. And you, as that representative of Christ, becomes like a priest. How powerful is that? But this is what Paul says. So if the unbeliever doesn't want to leave you, then praise the Lord. This may be an opportune moment for you to now be a priest and a prophet to them. And besides, the children has to see father and mother sticking through together. But when we get to verses 15 and 16, Paul presents his sort of a unique perspective. He says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. Don't go and try to convert them and bring them back. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. That is, well, that is, it's okay for that to be considered divorce then because you're not enslaved to that anymore. God has called us to live in peace for the sake of peace instead of war, sake of peace and understanding instead of misunderstanding and havoc happening in the family. Such a case can call for divorce. Then he says, how do you know wife whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife? So therefore, let them go and pray for them. Root for them. Love them. Do everything to share the gospel with them. But he places no bound to marital commitment here. Because... The unbelieving spouse was the one who left. And so he provides the second ground for divorce here. And Jesus didn't make this statement, but Paul is making this statement. Jesus said, adultery will violate the marital covenant. If the unbeliever decides to leave you, then the marriage is broken automatically because that spouse has forfeited this covenant. 
And so you're not bound by that. So you have only two grounds of divorce in the New Testament. One, adultery. Two, abandonment. Now why such a strict restriction in terms of the boundary or parameter of marriage and divorce? Well, in one simple word, marriage is such a serious business. Marriage is ordained by God. Marriage is a covenant relationship. And that was clearly demonstrated in the Old Testament. The prophets always took up this idea of a marriage to describe relationship between Yahweh and the people of God. It's like marriage. Don't take that lightly. God doesn't take that lightly. You're bound through marriage. Marriage is a serious business. Why? Because it is through the marriage that we produce and we nurture family, which is the building block of the social structure of humanity. That's where we cultivate this relationship between husband and wife, parents and children. And I might even use the word discipleship. That's where true discipleship happens. What kind of context do you see in the world where parents have total charge over their children for at least a decade? Or maybe even more in some cases. Until the children really get tired of staying under the parental authority and they decide to leave. But you have that total control up to the time of their puberty, maybe into their adolescence. Hallelujah. No hallelujah to that? They are potentially your disciples. It really has to do what you have in mind, what you have in store for them. Don't lose that opportunity as parents. So marriage is something that should be seriously meditated on, reflected on, deeply having soul search about. Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Of course, he's not just talking about marriage context. He's talking about fellowship context. But then, in marriage context, this would be most relevant. To be unequally yoked is like having two animals with two different muscular structures and uh, two different types trying to walk the same path together. And their paces are different. Their leverages are different. And so the yoke is going to rub on their neck and they'll get blisters and they'll be fatigued in the process of walking together when they were not meant to be joined together. Having said that, no wonder Jesus provides one ground of divorce. Paul provides the second ground of divorce, adultery and abandonment. And, of course, Paul qualifies by saying that if you are a divorced Christian and the, your spouse was a Christian who left you, then he makes no room for remarriage. He says, unless your spouse dies or they come back to you, you just need to stay single. And you just need to pray and expect that your spouse will repent 
There will be forgiveness, there will be reconciliation, and all that. But having said that, I want to talk about the possibility of other grounds of divorce. I don't think uh, Jesus or Paul meant this is the only thing because they have not received that kind of inquiry. What if they came back to the 21st century and they were having a forum and this was a question and answer session and all kinds of questions would come up? I'm pretty certain they would allow for other grounds of divorce. Let me talk about a few. For example, extreme abuse, where you are physically being abused, mentally being abused, emotionally being abused, even spiritually being abused. That will shatter the sanctity of marriage. Remember, marriage, by definition, has to do with the union and really taking care of each other. Because this is a holy, sanctified covenant before God. Another ground may be addiction. Drug addiction, alcohol addiction, gambling, pornography, that you don't see any hope because your spouse is so much plagued by that. That could be another ground for divorce. I really believe that because through addiction, you are bringing destruction to your marriage. Another ground, I believe, is a possibility is financial irresponsibility, crime, imprisonment. There's no way to survive as a family because you are being totally irresponsible in taking care of your family. That's why in the Old Testament, there are much more openness to divorce if you do not provide for your family, if you do not care for your family, if you restrict the freedom of your family. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So you can't just go around being irresponsible and say, well, you can't divorce me because I haven't committed adultery. You can't divorce me because I'm not leaving you. I believe in the sanctity of marriage. If you believe in the sanctity of marriage, then you would do everything possible to obligate yourself to take care of your family, to love your spouse, to care for the, your children. Now, having said that, I'm not saying that simply because you do have a legitimate ground for divorce, you should divorce right away, even if it's an adultery situation. Hello, can I hear maybe a little bit of an amen to that? Even if it's an adultery situation, that does not mean you should divorce right away. If you can get reconciled, if you can truly forgive, if something can happen so that you can patch up the marriage, and we've seen so many cases all over the world of a spouse committing adultery, but instead of divorcing, they try to work it out. Even in the case of extreme abuse, you do have the ground, but if you can work it out and you can patch up that marriage, even in the case of addiction or crime or imprisonment that you will not be able to provide for your spouse and the, your children for years to come. And yet, because of such integrity of the spouse, they stuck by and were loyal to you until you came out of the prison and you patched that up 
All of these are possible, but it all depends on how much grace you have to be able to allow for that. But I, I do believe that we do have those grounds, or God will permit those grounds. And those are the questions that we need to ask Jesus directly and Apostle Paul directly in this matter. But in a literal sense, in the New Testament, there are only two grounds for divorce, adultery and abandonment. Just remember that. So the whole point about marriage is it requires responsibility, great responsibility to care for one another, to provide for the needs of each other, to strengthen, to empower one another, to uplift one another. And more than anything, show mutual submission and respect and honor to one another according to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Let's read this out loud together. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is what marriage is about, the state of union, whereby there's mutual submission, mutual respect, and honor. It's as though you're taking care of your own body. If, if your spouse is hurting, then you're hurting. If your spouse is broken, you're broken. Don't tell me you could beat up on your spouse and get away with that. Don't tell me you can just remain in your addiction and say, you can't divorce me because there's no New Testament prescription for that. Don't tell me you not being responsible for your family and simply insisting that you cannot divorce, that you can somehow get away with it. That's not going to work. Because the same spirit with which Jesus spoke, and the same spirit with which Apostle Paul spoke, the highest view of marriage would not permit that. So if you violate that, then you need to repent big time. Be shattered and broken of that. And even if you lose all right to maintain that marriage, you've lost that right. No one can say, I have the right based upon the scripture to do this kind of damnable things to their spouses and to their children. The reason why I'm very specific about some of the other grounds is because today we have many Christian leaders saying 
just dogmatically. There's only one ground, adultery. Did that spouse commit adultery? Maybe you have the ground now for divorce. Or if the unbelieving spouse left you, well, then what can you do about that? And they're so restricted in their interpretation and understanding of the essence of the word. So a spouse being beaten up and broken and, and ending up in the hospital over and over, that's not a ground for divorce? Simply because there was no adultery involved in this? That just does not make sense. So I believe that we as Christian leaders and Christians in general, we need to be sensitive to what is going on out there. We need to learn all kinds of abuses that's going on out there. That may be registered as equivalent to violating the covenant of marriage. Amen. Amen. Let us pray.